Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. It's Thursday, May the 18th, and this week we're focusing on a special report about the humanitarian crisis that is South Sudan. We've got in the issue a special report which is written by one of our Lancet reporters, Sharmila Devi, and I'm delighted that Sharmila has been able to A, give us some time to talk about her special report, but also, Sharmila, you've been on the ground in South Sudan and you've captured for us some some excellent audio clips that we're going to use in this podcast podcast. Before we go into some of the detail, the singing we just heard there, tell us about that. The singing was by some women who are at a camp in Juba, in the capital Juba. There are these two large camps, which are known as protection of civilian camps, where over the last few years, just under 40,000 people have fled to them and where they are living under the protection of UN peacekeepers. This is a, a clinic where these women get together and they're taught about basic health and sanitation issues. So the song's lyrics they run through a list of conditions that their baby might suffer, such as convulsions, diarrhea. And then the chorus means go to the hospital. It's a way of learning, you know, the sorts of things that may go wrong with their, with their children and then what to do, go to the hospital, which would be within the camp. South Sudan has been in civil conflict, hasn't it, since 2013? I mean, for goodness sake, it's a relatively new country, as we know. Just set the scene and explain when you were there and how long you were there for. Well, as you say, it's a very young country. He was only born in 2011 when South Sudan gained independence from Sudan in the north. By 2013, uh, ethnic violence broke out and since then there have been various attempts to bring about a ceasefire, political settlement, but it still remains very elusive. So what we've seen are thousands of people who have fled either within the country to to safety or across borders to neighbouring countries, particularly to Uganda. It's a very big country. It's about the size of France, roughly 11 million people. It's very hard to get any accurate statistics from the country. And it's a very, very sad situation. I was there only for just over a week. I was in the capital, Juba, and then I went to the north to a place called Awil, which is uh, relatively peaceful. It was absolutely heartbreaking. Children in particular are dying just for lack of basic drugs from uh, famine, the first famine in six years to be declared was uh, declared early this year in parts of the country. There are fears that that famine could spread, and it's absolutely heartbreaking. I notice in the piece, Sharmila, a very powerful wording, that famine is being used as a weapon of war. Can you elaborate on, on that point? Indeed. What happens is that across the country you have government soldiers but also rebel soldiers they put up a checkpoint across roads and the roads are usually dirt muddy tracks Uh, there's very little paved road in the entire country but they will put up checkpoints and aid agencies have to negotiate individually to get through them now aid agencies will not pay these soldiers but often what might happen is that they may have to hand over a certain 
certain amount of the aid, which will then go to those soldiers, be they rebel or government, to allow the rest of the truck, to, the rest of the truck's contents, to go through to the people. So that's the sense in which aid is being used as, as a weapon of war. And malnutrition is a genuine problem, and in some cases, severe acute malnutrition is affecting young children. That's right. And so I went to a hospital in a wheel in the north, which is run by Medsys on Frontier, who were doing an absolutely fantastic job. But for admissions, they have to have very, very strict criteria. In other words, a child, a baby, has to be absolutely acutely malnourished before they can admit that baby and mother. And they'll admit that mother and baby maybe for a couple of weeks. Once the baby reaches a certain weight, which will probably still be very underweight for that child's age, they then have to uh, discharge the mother and child and allow other more acute cases to be admitted. Let's hear a clip now. So I'm speaking with Okoye Dennis of Concern. He runs this health facility here where twice a week, an average of about 50 women will come here, they'll bring their children, they'll get their children checked, they'll see how badly mal- malnourished a lot of their children are. So please tell us, what are the sorts of things you've been seeing in the last few weeks as the women come here and they bring their children? Normally, in this facility, at the moment, I could say it has a little bit improved, particularly for severe acute malnutrition cases. We are having 67 in the programs, and uh, these are children who are severely malnourished. And we are having up to 198 children who are moderate malnourished. But we expect the new ones who have come today, which will exceed, and I know we will go up to 200 for the moderate acute malnutrition. And for severe acute malnutrition, it will still remain at 60 to 70. Ideally, what is making it increasing currently is the households, they are lacking food. Whereby you find that the challenge is the few children who normally come into the programs, they are even sharing some of the supply at home. So we are trying our level base, teaching those mothers to know the importance, why we are giving to those malnourished children. And we are also telling them to restrict the use. They should not be giving it generally to those. We encourage them to bring all those children which they think they are also having this kind of problem so that we have it in too. Way forward also, we have now scaled up our activities by recruiting volunteers in all the villages who are ever doing home visiting, giving them all those guidance, doing also the massive work screening, doing other mobilizations and other messages, which has greatly improved these activities too. We also try at our level base to focus now on the community activities only. Since we are opening this facility once a week, the rest of the other days, it is for the community activities which we normally move and uh, encourage them of what has to be. We are also trying our level best to integrate our nutrition activities with the livelihood part of it. So the livelihood departments of ours are also supporting us in that way too. Still also on the other part of the health, we are trying our level best to integrate it so that we address we tackle this malnutrition from all corners. All in all, I can say this is the place where we are teaching our mothers how to manage acute malnutrition from their home. And Shamila, I think... An important point to make as well, whilst the main focus of your special report is on the appalling situation in South Sudan, there's a geographical wave that's affecting neighbouring countries too. That's right. So apart from South Sudan, you also have uh, the countries of Yemen, Somalia and Nigeria, where in 
all three of those countries, again, you've got a combination of conflict and also famine. The rains have been very late this year, but it's essentially more conflict-driven, where malnutrition, famine is also a big risk in those countries. You at the UN and the various UN agencies have said that almost 20 million people could be at risk of starvation because of war and drought. At least half of those 20 million would be children. So it's a massive, massive problem across the whole region. And what is the UN doing about it? Because, I mean, this is, is the proportions we're talking about are biblical. I think you used that word in, in, in a special report. But clearly, international action has to happen and, and the UN has to step up. But it's politically difficult, isn't it? That's right. You've got division in the UN Security Council over how to solve those individual conflicts uh, in all four countries. And until there's any kind of unanimity over what can be done, it's very, very difficult to make political progress. The UN agencies and any other brave NGOs are doing what they can to deliver aid and get to the people who need it. But again, a combination of issues, you know, you're dealing with soldiers, you're dealing with practically non-existent infrastructure. It makes it all incredibly challenging. So the outlook is rather grim for the region, for the region I'm afraid. And is it genocide? That is the big question. You had the British International Development Secretary, Priti Patel. She went to South Sudan last month. She said that she thought that what, some of what she saw was genocide. There's been no official declaration of genocide. That would require an army of lawyers to reach agreement. Again, there would be many countries within the UN that would not want to see necessarily a declaration of genocide because that would entail the international community taking concerted action to stop and to prevent it. It's very hard to see where that might go in the near future. And related to that, I mean, the World Food Programme is is key to this. But again, your report points out how it's just, I mean, this affects Yemen as well, doesn't it? And, And the other countries you've mentioned, as well as South Sudan, there just isn't enough money in the World Food Programme pot, is there? There isn't indeed to deal with the acute challenges in all four countries. The UN has said they need something like $5.6 billion, but so far, much less than a quarter of that has been raised. You know, they're talking about the bare minimum to, to, to try and help people. So the outlook is extremely grim. And in addition to the lack of food, as you've already alluded to, it's the lack of medical, fairly basic medical supplies that are contributing to this catastrophe. We can now hear a clip from a health worker that you spoke to. We can hear from Peter Mapiot, a health ministry clinical officer in a wheel in the north of South Sudan. So Peter, tell us about the drugs that you are running out of and the problems that you are facing here. I am facing uh, the, the, the drug running out. There's no antimalarial, antibiotics are not available. All the drugs, like even EFIA, they are not there all of the drug. We are just staying two weeks and it is now going to four weeks. And as we are now in this week, that we are just staying here, seeing those outside, and then nothing we can give to the people right now. And how dangerous is the situation? Is it possible that people are dying because of this? Yes, of course, because there's no something to help them. Whenever somebody comes here, we just make referral to go to our will town. If you could have anything you wanted right now what is the thing that you need the most here at the clinic the first thing we are just having the lamb here but there's no solar system we are running out there's no something what we call a drinking water they are not around here we just go far for less to fight for water 
for the patient here than for the lack of drugs in the health facility. So even there is no refrigerator for the EPI. So we just go to our wheel and bring the boxings. We use them, and when they come uh, hot, we just take them back to our wheel again. What's it like being a journalist in southern Sudan at the moment? I have to say I've been to a few difficult places in my career, but this is probably the most difficult place. I had steeled myself or tried to steal myself for some of the tragic scenes that I would see in terms of the, the poor children, starving babies. But what also quite shocked me was particularly in the capital Juba, it felt very frightening. It felt quite uh, threatening. There is a curfew, certainly after seven o'clock, you know, you do not want to be out on the streets, on your, especially as a woman, on your own. You only use trusted drivers. There are plenty of soldiers wandering around, especially at the airport. You see a lot of soldiers. And it, that, that, the whole thing feels feels rather threatening. But I also must add as well that the South Sudanese people whom I met were an inspiration. I mean, they really are working under incredibly difficult circumstances. And to see people who are still doing all they can it was very inspirational. This is a difficult thing to talk about and to document, of course, but rape is, I'm afraid, inevitable, isn't it, in, in a conflict situation like this. Are you able to give us any insight into how rape is being used as, as a weapon of war as well? Rape seems to be a very widespread occurrence. Now, Sudanese women, women, like in many other countries, don't like to talk about it, and it's very difficult to get exact statistics, but in the protection of civilian camps that I went to in Juba, of which there are two, and as I say, just under 40,000 people, a survey was done a few months back where they estimated that something like 70% of the women there had been raped, literally just outside of the camp. So what they will do, what women will do is they'll leave the camp, just, you know, they'll travel, maybe walk a few hundred meters to collect firewood so that they can cook their meals. Soldiers and rebels and mostly soldiers in, in, in Juba, they will lie in wait for them. And so the UN peacekeepers, they've extended a security cordon, but it's still very dangerous for the women if they leave the camp, as I say, even if they just venture a few hundred metres outside of the camp's fences. However grim it is, and, and of course the situation is appalling, in terms of looking to progress and, and, and moving forward, the humanitarian response, the first thing to say is South Sudan is not lacking for the number of NGOs that are involved in trying to deal with this humanitarian emergency. You document something like 57 NGOs are involved. That requires an awful lot of coordination. That's right. And I spoke to the head of the uh, World Health Organization there, who is working on that very issue, just obviously within the health sector. You've got so many people who, who want to do their best, but it does require a lot of coordination, and that is being worked on, so as I say, in the health sector by the WHO. And we must also remember the South Sudanese diaspora. I mean, in Britain alone, there are many, many people who come from that region who want to help, so that there is a possibility of seeing in the future that with the goodwill of the international community, along with the desire of the South Sudanese themselves to help, that things could one day move forward, but we're not at that day just yet. WHO is hopeful that, that the government will spend more on health. There are lots of UN political officers as well as uh, diplomats who are pressuring the government to spend more on health and other humanitarian needs and to spend less on arms. 
so yes, if if there could be some progress there, that would be very, very welcome. And I think this is well exemplified, actually, again, with another clip, with the director of, of a local hospital that, that you met who talks about the lack of resources and the impact this is having on health care. Here's an audio clip from Den Gol, acting director for the Awil State Hospital. Tell us about the main challenges you're facing when you are running the hospital. Yeah, we have a lot of challenges. We don't have qualified staff, uh, like medical assistant, medical doctors, who supposed to work in that place. The shortage of staff is a big problem to us here to cover 24 hours, okay, to run such a big hospital like Awil State Hospital. Because it is a referral hospital. Referral hospital is supposed to work for uh, 24 hours, three duties per day. And when you have only three medical officers running that a big hospital, it, it would be a big challenge for them okay, to do the best uh, work toward that patient. Another challenge also, we have a, 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 a drugs a shortage okay, in, the, in the hospital. This big hospital is serving many populations, is serving a lot of populations here in our area, uh, almost three states. These three states, they depend totally on this uh, uh, hospital. At the same time, we don't have a sufficient supply okay, of drugs. And Sharmila, you did speak to a minister, not the, not the overall minister of health for the country, but for a regional, the, the, the state minister of health. Did she give you any um, grounds for optimism? It was difficult to be optimistic, but she was hopeful that, I mean, she's, you know, very grateful for the aid that she has received, but she desperately needs more. And we're talking about where her state is a relatively peaceful area. But one of the challenges she spoke about is that it's a very rural area and many people don't have access to any kind of health care. They need to walk, and we're talking about literally walking for hours through the countryside if they are to see anybody. She is hoping that more aid will get through, but it's very difficult. The challenges are massive, as she says herself. Now we can hear from Teresina Atu-Lues. Minister, thank you for giving us your time. Please tell us about some of the health problems facing you in this state. The problem I have is medicine, malaria medicine. That will be the first priority. Right now, the season is coming with the malaria. I mean, that's rain, rain season. It is coming with the malaria, and uh, we don't have enough drug. Last year, people, they died a lot, a lot of people because of lack of drug. We didn't have that much. We have a few and they are finished quick. Are you hopeful that peace will come to your country? And how might this make things better in your country? Oh, it makes the people are make me relaxed, happy, and really excited. Because if there is a peace in the country, everything will be good. If there is no peace, there is no peace of mind. But I do pick up a message as well that whilst acknowledging that the situation is terrible I get the impression that the people don't want to be viewed as helpless although they do need a lot of help that people are trying to be positive is, is that right that is absolutely right uh, one of the church leaders that I spoke with who has been very instrumental in trying to organize peace dialogues peace talks just on a, on a local level he was also very keen to stress that point that you know if we just see these people as helpless victims it's very difficult to see a way forward but of course, you know, South Sudanese, like people everywhere, have their hopes and desires and want peace. 
they know they need help to get there, but they want peace and then they could be a bright future. And just a final thought, Sharmila, what one thing would make the greatest impact, the greatest difference now? Is it political resolution? Is it UN stepping up to the plate? It's political resolution. If you could have the international community in agreement on ways to go forward, and there are plenty of steps that could be taken, so perhaps deeper, harder sanctions on some of the leaders, an arms embargo, perhaps the US being unilateral in imposing financial sanctions because the guardian of the dollar, it has a lot of clout. Any one of these steps could maybe do a lot to bring the parties at conflict right now, bring them to the negotiating table, have a ceasefire and try and find a way forward. Sharmila Devi, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for your time now. Thank you for your special report and for being on the ground in southern Sudan. Thank you very much. I think we need to close with a little bit more singing. See you next time. Amen, amen, wa qalbaka al-wasoo.